0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason.
1: Hello, Joni. Here we are again. Here we
0: are. What are we going to talk about today? You well, brought br- a guest.
1: I brought a special guest today. Um, one of our staff trainees is here to share her story of her journey through addiction. And awesome. so she's got a great story. Um, it's uh, impressive since she's so young. And uh, her story has helped a lot of people so far. And so I'd like her to continue doing that. And so I brought her to talk to everybody today. This is great. Yeah. What's her name? Her name is Cicera. Okay. And she completed our program about almost six months ago. Awesome. And since then, she's been training to come on as a staff member. Uh huh. And she's about three weeks away from the end of her training, which I know she's really excited about. That's
0: and awesome. And so
1: she'll be a full posted staff member. And what she's decided to do is put the war is she's in a division at Narcanon that's purpose is to put the word out about oh. the program and get other people you know to fix their own lives and come in and decide to do the narconon program and so it's a really it's an excellent thing so i thought this would be great for her to do
0: absolutely so. okay we're gonna do a microphone switch so hold on so so sarah welcome hello i'm really glad you're here i am too Cool. Thank
2: you for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Well, what the way I usually like to start is to kind of get your story. How did you first become involved in with drugs?
2: Okay, so um, growing up, my childhood was pretty normal. Um, my parents had me at a pretty young age, and so I think I became very independent at a very young age and kind of was always off doing my own thing. Um, I also kind of had this sense... Because I was so grown up for my age that I didn't really fit in with people at school and stuff that were my age because I was doing so much more. I was taking care of my little brother and taking care of the house at home. Okay. So um, in high school, I didn't get along with a lot of people. um, And the kids that I hung out with were a lot older than me. I eventually dropped out of high school um, when I was 15 and just kind of got in with the wrong crowd completely. And I was working full time. And I just kind of fell into this. It was a crowd that I felt accepted in because Mm -hmm. all you really needed was to party and use drugs. And you were automatically a part of that group. Hmm. Um, So it really wasn't hard for me to get involved. And by the time I was 15, almost 16, I had started using Oxycontin very heavily.
0: And is that what you started with? Is that the drug you started with?
2: I mean, I started smoking marijuana around that same time as well. Okay. Um, And it, it went really fast. It was marijuana, drinking, you know, dabbling with club drugs, like ecstasy and stuff like that. And then I just kind of – once I tried OxyCon for the first time, that was kind of it.
0: So I'm curious. And I, I, thank you for saying that you got started with marijuana because there's obviously a big push across the country to make marijuana legal. And I think so many people think – Oh, marijuana doesn't lead to other drugs. So when I hear a story like yours, and that's what you started with, then I go, okay. Well, listen to this. Now, one question about marijuana though: was it like the new marijuana? Do you know what I do you know what I mean when I say that? The one that has like more, Jason. You know what I'm talking about? It's like more THC in it or something, and it's got synthetic. Was it that, or was it? Just regular weed, you it was,
2: know? It wasn't synthetic marijuana, but okay. I think since around the age that I started, marijuana has been a lot stronger, and okay. it's continuing to get a lot stronger. I'm from California, so it's like... It's really it's well, really strong over there. Well, and I'm smiling and because, because
0: you say you started when you were 15. You look like you're 15, so I'm like, how <laughs> long ago was that? But that's okay. You don't have to tell your age.
2: Okay. Well, ju- I am 23 now. Okay. So I was using for about um, eight years. Okay. Um, well,
0: you look super young, so there you go. Okay. <laughs> thank cool. you. All right. So you, you started with marijuana, and then you moved on to Oxycontin.
2: Yes. And when I tried Oxycontin for the first time, um, honestly the first thought that went through my head was I had found like my one and only like, this was it. I had tried a bunch of other drugs, but I had found the one that, you know, it just felt perfect. Like it was a match made in heaven. Um, Obviously, I found out, you know, that that wasn't the case, and it um, it spiraled into something much bigger. Mm-hmm. For the first couple of years, I think with a lot of addicts, they go through this phase of being a functioning addict, right? Where you can have a job and you're doing well at work, well enough, you know, to support your habit. But what happened with the pill mills and everything? Once they got all shut down, it's like your OxyContin habit turns into a four hundred dollar a day habit, right? And you can't you can't keep that up no matter how much you're working. And so it's Okay, so now
0: you bring up another subject, which is near and dear to my heart, and that's the pill mills, yes. because probably, what, four or five years ago, Florida was number one mm-hmm. in pill mills. And then the Attorney General, who we happen to know, because we've had her come and speak to our group, and we've had events with her, she hired um, Dave Ehrenberg to shut down the pill mills in the state. So... Why is it, when the pill mills went away, did the, was it just became much more expensive because you could only get it from, like, dealers? Is that the deal?
2: Pretty much, yeah. Uh, um I, you know, in California, there was pill mills, not so much as Florida, mm-hmm. but there was also a lot of dirty doctors. Mm. And so when they kind of cracked down, the doctors, I mean, some of the ones I know went to prison, rightfully so. That's because, a good thing. Yeah. yeah. But, um, and so on the street, it became much, much more expensive. Um. To anywhere between, for some of them, were $120 a pill. Wow. So it just became impossible to keep up a habit like that. Mm-hmm. And that opened the doors for a lot of people that I know for heroin and for myself. Because it's cheaper, it's easier, and it's just much more common to find than the pills. Right. And so I was holding down a job. Things were going okay. Um, I had had my own apartment by the time I was 17. I was working full time. Um Not long after that, I lost my apartment. I started hanging out with an even scarier crowd of people. Um, And I didn't really have any, there wasn't like a consciousness that I had that was like, hey, the things that you're doing could land you in prison for the rest of your life. Because, you know.
0: Well, of course not. Because if you'd thought that, you might have gone, hmm, maybe I don't want to do this.
2: Exactly. And I, you know, I got myself in some really scary situations Um, So by the time I had turned 18, my parents said, that's it. You're going straight to rehab. Mm -hmm. So that was the first rehab program I went to. It was 30 days. It was a 12-step program. And the way that I looked at it basically was I have a 30-day vacation. You Mm -hmm. know, I'll, I'll put some weight on. I'll save up some money. And then when I get out of here, I'll just be right back to it. Maybe I'll be able to get a job and hold it down for a little bit. We'll see how it goes. Right. And unfortunately, that kind of became a cycle for me. Um, and I just had this feeling, okay, I have a disease, I'm a chronic relapser and this is just how I'm going to live the rest of my life wow. because it, you know, it just became impossible. You know, these 30 day programs, I wasn't, people are telling me to read out of a book and then it's going to keep me sober, but it wasn't keeping me sober. Right. Um, and I, you know, I struggled a lot. I, my family, I became very distant from them. Luckily, you know, my grandmother has been very supportive of me. Throughout my journey, but even my relationship with her became very strained. Um,
0: Let me stop you just for a second. So, you go into um, a 12 step program or a 28 day program, and maybe the first time, did you think it was going to help you, or did you just think, oh, it's just like you said, kind of like a little bit of a vacation, and then I can get myself together, and then if I want to start using it again, I can?
2: I think in the beginning, I was like, you know, because all the times that I went to rehab, I genuinely did want to be sober. I think, you know, I, I wanted it, but it was kind of just like an idea. Mm-hmm. It was a nice idea, but it wasn't something that I was actually willing to, to do yet. Um, and so when I started, you know, I was kind of all about it and, okay, let's go to meetings and let's do this and let's do that. But then I kind of, this idea clicked in my head, you know, being an addict and being manipulative. Well, let's see what I can, you know what I mean? Let's see what I can get out of this and then continue to do what I'm doing, continue to use drugs. Right. So, so that... That was a tough cycle to break. Um, I, do, do, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry if,
0: I, if I interrupt you, and you can always smack me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you ever get to the point where – and because in the 12-step program, they teach you it's a disease, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's not something you can be cured of, right? Yes. So you're always going to have it. You're always going to have the craving, and you always just have to deal with that. Was there a point at which – you kind of started to accept that for yourself and thought, well, I guess that's just the way I am.
2: Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, especially the first couple times I went to 12-step rehabs, I didn't know anything else. I didn't really know. there. I was 18, 19 years old. I didn't know that there were other rehabil- rehabilitation options out there for right. me. Right. Um, and so it's it's depressing. It's kind of sad. Okay, I have a disease. This is how it's going to be forever. And, you know, not to knock on 12-step because I do have – people that I'm close with that it does work for. Mm-hmm. But from my point of view, it was like I would see people up there that had 30 years sober, and they didn't seem very happy. Mm. And it was kind of, you know, and they're living with the thought that they have this disease, and it just it felt like a huge weight on my shoulders. Right. And then my idea was, okay, if I have a disease, then I might as well just have the disease. Right. And this is what it is, and I can't change it. So. You know, if I'm going to live like this, I'm going to enjoy myself.
0: It's, it's such a. And I don't mean this personally toward you, but I just think the the viewpoint of a 12-step program, because the percentage of people who actually are successful with it is so small, you would think that someone at some point would look at that and go, like, what's wrong with this program? Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe this idea that someone has a disease and they can't be cured, maybe there's something wrong with that viewpoint. Do you know? It's just, I... I Jason and I have talked about that. You know, we've we've talked about, you know, and how he addresses people who come to Narcanon with a completely different viewpoint. But anyway, I've gotten off track. So back yeah. to your story. <laughs>
2: That's okay. And I, I mean, I do think while someone is actively in addiction, it kind of is like a disease. I think more than it being a disease, you become a disease mm. because you just kind of infect everything and everyone around you. That is true. And, and it does get progressively worse. But I, I definitely now it's like, when I first came to Narcanon, I think the first thing that I heard was, "We don't believe you have a disease here." Right, and it was like a huge weight being lifted off my shoulders. Like, oh my god, this is this is a whole new idea. Yeah, and who would have thought? But it's um, I mean, it's definitely amazing.
0: Well, that's kind of what I'm saying. You know, when you. Continuously try and ding home that someone has a disease and that it's something wrong with them. And it's some kind of a flaw either in their physical, mental, or spiritual makeup. It, it's invalidative. Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's, it's an invalidation of who you are. And I think that that's one of the things that makes me really question that type of program because I don't think at any point when you start addressing only what's wrong with someone, or, you know, I don't, all you're going to get is more of that wrongness. In other words, you have to go in with what's right, what's what you are smart about. And the point, you know, that Jason has made several times, and that you just made some bad decisions, we've all made bad decisions. And some of the ones that, you know, an addict makes have heavier consequences than if I decide I'm going to have extra ice cream and deal with a couple extra pounds. I mean, you know, okay, that's a bad decision. But it's, but an addict is making maybe decisions with more consequences. But I just, I don't know, I just, I, I've never felt that to try and help someone by invalidating them is the right way to go. It just really sticks, sticks in my craw. Anyway,
2: Exactly. How many
0: how many 12-step programs did you go through?
2: Um, narc- five 12-step programs. Okay. Um, multiple medical detoxes, multiple sober living homes that were 12-step as well. Um, I tried over and over and over again. And like you said, um, my life consequences were getting bigger and bigger each time. It was like every time I got out of a program, you kind of just feel like a complete failure, you know, because you feel guilty. And then the whole, uh, you just kind of feel like throwing in the towel. And that's really how I felt. Right. Um, and I, I took. I spent a lot of time and money going to them too. So my family was pretty much over it. Right. Um, I had a lot of legal consequences stacking up. I was facing um, a lot of jail time. Wow. And something in me. I had heard about the Narcanon program. I had heard about sauna. Um, my mom had actually found out about it, but she was kind of done with me at that point. Right. Um, and I was in medical detox. My probation officer was there, and I was getting ready to go to another state program, another 12-step program, and I'm in the med detox, and it's in my right outside of my hometown, and so I'm seeing all these people cycling through, people that have been there 40 times, 50 times, just over and over again, and they've been to these programs a bunch of times, and I looked at my probation officer, and I said, what if I could find a way to go to Narcanon? And she said, and luckily, she was so supportive, and she was awesome. She said, "If you find a program that you really want to go to and that you want to do, I'm supportive of whatever you want. Because to be quite honest with you, I don't want you to go to one of these state programs either." She's like, "I want you to get this, and I want it to work," because she she was scared for my life. I was I was 95 pounds, you know, and I'm not a tall person. I'm five three, but I was 95 pounds, and I
0: that's pretty thin. Yeah, you know, yeah. I
2: had been in and out of the hospital for infections and stuff like that from. IV heroin use that it was just i was a mess at that point and i think she really wanted me to take any opportunity i could get and so that was one that was the first time that i called Narcanon. and i i honestly really didn't have much of a plan <laughs> when i called <laughs> i don't i don't think my family was 100 percent aware that i was doing this um but once i told my grandma like hey this is what i'm doing you know, she was behind me 100% and she was awesome. totally supportive.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And the- now, which Narcanon did you go to?
2: Um I went to Narcanon Suncoast in Florida. Oh, here. Oh, okay. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. So so you were in this area at that time. I was in California. Oh. Yeah. I was right outside of San Francisco in Marin County.
0: Now since we know that there's a Narcanon there, how did you end up at Narcanon Suncoast?
2: Well, um I I think my insurance covered better out here, Okay, a little bit better, but um, I also, I wanted to get out of the area.
0: That's a smart decision. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I, I love San Francisco with all my heart. Everybody knows, you know, that I work with, that I love California, but I knew that there was no way, that I, I didn't stand a chance, that if I went, you know, if I was that close to home, that it, it was just going to be really hard for me. Right. And I really needed to get away and focus on my sobriety and focus on myself and, being the person, you know, that I had the potential to be. And when they told me I was going out of state, I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, that's what I wanted anyways. And I thought I would go somewhere like Arizona or somewhere close by. <laughs> but uh, they said, you're going to Florida. And I said, okay, that's fine. And um, within a couple of days, my grandma had planned it out. And I was on a plane to Arkansas.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So you kind of you're an extremely smart person. Because I think, I don't think that uh, the, I don't know if there's such a thing as in the average addict, and Jason's over there, he can nod or shake his head would would have enough awareness to know it's going to be better for me if I get out of this environment. That part of what's going on has to do with this environment and the people that I typically hang out with and the, the places that I typically go. And it sounds like you had somewhat of that realization before you came.
2: Absolutely. And I think um I think with a lot of addicts, they can put up a lot of walls for why they shouldn't leave their area, but to me it's like it's it's a back door because mm-hmm. I went to a lot of local facilities. Right. I went to a lot of places where I could just call someone up and say, "Hey, come pick me up because the tr- the truth is, you're going to have hard days in rehab." Right. Rehab's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be this breeze, you know, if you're really there to for the right reasons and to work on yourself and to get better, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. Um, And so I knew, you know, this time around, I was like, I'm doing this and I'm doing it 110% and it's going to work and I'm going to make this go right. And so I knew that I wasn't going to give myself any back doors or any reason to, you know, leave or not do it to the fullest right and so i wanted to get out of the area and i wanted to make sure that i really focused on what i needed to focus on that's awesome
0: when in the Narcanon program did you go oh this is really different at what point when you were going through the program
2: um well i mean sauna is definitely a lot different um it's amazing. And just getting your body back to the way it was, you really, you can't put a price tag on that. It's, right. it's incredible. And I can understand now why it's so hard to stay sober as an addict when your body doesn't feel good. You feel tired, you have all these drugs still, you know, stacked up in your body, and it's, it's exhausting. And it's really hard to think clearly and really focus on on the underlying issues if your body doesn't feel good.
0: And sauna also addresses the craving, doesn't
2: it? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I went from having drug dreams almost every night. Oh, Jason said the same thing, (laughs) drug dreams. (laughs) Lots of drug dreams, lots of sweating, restlessness, Mm -hmm. and the cravings are, I mean, I I don't think about drugs or alcohol anymore. Wow. And working at rehab, you know, I hear people talk about it and stuff like that, and I don't ever get cravings. Um, so it's amazing. I think my, oh my God moment though, was during objectives. Definitely.
0: Tell me me what happened.
2: Um, well I had, luckily I had a great twin that I was working with. Um, and it was just this moment of like such clarity that, oh my God, I will never touch drugs again there' wow. there is there's nothing in this world that could make me want to do that ever again because i'm happy now wow I'm happy and I'm realizing all this stuff about myself and i'm twenty three years old I can do whatever I want with my life that's right. I have the whole world in my hands, and I can literally do anything, and I'm happier off drugs than I ever was on drugs Wow, so that was that was real big for me. What a great
0: story, okay, so one of the things that Cezara said, was that when she was doing objectives, she had a twin. And it just means someone that helps you get through the objectives and you help them get through the objectives. So for anybody listening, that's one of the things you will experience if you end up going to Narcanon. And so when did you finish the program?
2: I finished the program um, January, I want to say around January 2nd or 3rd. Okay. Um, What a beautiful way to start the new year. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And I knew from the 2nd... Um, you know that I got to Narcanon. I knew about the senior student program, which is basically the staff training program. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was definitely something I wanted to do. Um, it was an opportunity to you know become staff at a rehab. That's awesome, right? And especially you know all the wins that I got through the program myself. Why would I not want to help someone get Ex- that for for themselves too?
0: Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that we hear over and over and over again from the staff at Narcanon um, that. First of all, a lot of them were former addicts and came through the program, but it is, it's it's that, that, that feeling of once you know you found something that actually works and that can actually help people, you, you want everybody to know about it. It's like when you find the best restaurant in town, you're going to tell all your friends and post it all over Facebook. So it really makes sense.
2: Exactly. And it's nice to be able, you know, I work um, with people that are withdrawing a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's really nice to be able to sit down with someone and be like, look, I get it. I get what you're going through. I was in here. I was sick for 11 days, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've, I've been through it. Because at a lot of the 12 step programs or just any program, you know, medical programs, whatever it is, you're talking to a therapist or a doctor that's trying to tell you that they understand. But they don't. It's like, you don't, you don't understand any of it. Yeah. You haven't been through it. Yeah. And so it's really hard to have any reality, you know what I mean? With that Mm -hmm. person, because you know that they haven't been through the same thing.
0: Exactly. What does your family think now?
2: They are so happy. It's, um, it's amazing. I don't think I noticed until, you know, I really started training about a month into my training um, when I called my grandmother. In the past, there was always kind of this underlying fear. Mm-hmm. I could hear it in the tone of her voice, you know, like this underlying worry, and it's sh- it's completely gone. Wow. they're happy to hear from me, and me and my mom talk almost every other day. Um, I can give my little brother advice, and I'm, that's okay to do, because before, he's 18, but before I was, he was kind of taking care of me right. when he would call me, okay, are you okay? Are you safe? Where are you? And now it's like I can give him advice about going to college and we can really talk and I can be the big sister that I was meant to be. So that's, that's been huge for that, me. Too. That's
0: a really nice story. I can, and I'm, I can just see how, you know, he was probably worried about you a lot of the time.
2: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just happy that I can be a part of my family again. That's awesome. That's awesome. Have
0: you been home since you finished?
2: Not yet, no.
0: <laughs> Have they come here to yes. see Yes. Okay. My
2: mom came to visit, and we had a great visit. It was her first time in Florida, mm-hmm. and she really enjoyed it. And um, I actually did get invited to a family reunion, which is really cool, awesome. in September. Oh, so cool. I'll be going to see the family shortly. That'll be awesome. Yeah.
0: Very, very cool. So tell us what you're going to do at Narcanon. What are you going to do?
2: Um, like Jason said, I'm working in a division where we do outreach. Okay. Um, I, I really, really love it. I enjoy it a lot. Because I think, like you said, you know, you just you want to be able to tell people, mm-hmm. hey, like, look at this amazing opportunity we have. Yep. So I'm going to be doing outreach, um, and that's what I've been doing so far, and I've been doing really well. We actually have an online chat feature at um, on our website. Oh, so, I don't
0: think I knew that. Yeah. Oh, yes, I did. Because when I went there and I was looking at the blogs, all of a sudden something popped up and said, how can I help you? And I said, no, no, no I'm working with Jason. We're doing a podcast. It's okay. Was that you? Yeah. That was, oh, okay. That was, was like, me. No, it's okay. I'm just, I, you know, it's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. That's right, though. But that's good. Because then people go there just to check it out. Like if they go to org, and you pretty much pick up when, do they is it just anybody that comes there, or do they have to click on a certain thing? No, or? it's
2: anybody who's on the website, Okay, which is actually really cool, because there's a lot of drug education on the website, too, like yeah. signs and symptoms of drug abuse. And a lot of the times, there will be families on there that are just looking – they're just finding out, okay, your, your kid's addicted to heroin, or your kid's using meth. Right. And – I message them and they're they're not expecting a chat to pop up, but right. I end up getting their phone number and getting them on the phone with someone to help them, even if it's not our program, to help them find a program and you know really figure out how to handle what's going on if they're going to need an intervention or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's I I think it's a really awesome feature. I
0: think I think that's very cool. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast is because I'm sure there are people out there who. Either they're not sure whether they're addicted or don't really want to confront whether they're addicted. And so they could listen to a podcast like this and go and feel safe in doing that. Same way with a family. You know, we've talked a lot. Jason and I talked about it. Derek was on and we talked about it, how there's a, you know, for a parent, there's a shame involved, like, you know, well, there's first of all, the denial of no, there's no way my kid could ever be involved in drugs. But then there's the Oh, how could where have I gone wrong? And I think that for people to be able to go to the website and have an instant communication line to someone there, that's completely anonymous, because you can't see them, they can't see you. And they can ask the tough questions, and you can get them involved and get them engaged not involved, but get them engaged to where you can actually have a live conversation with them, which I think is huge. That's, that's actually huge. That's very, very cool. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to tell us or anything else you want to say?
2: Not that I can think of off the top of my head.
0: Okay. So I'm going to bring Jason back on. Thank you so much of for course. being on with us today. Your story is amazing. And you can't see her, but she is absolutely beautiful. She is a beautiful young 23 year old. And well done, you.
2: Thank you so much,
0: Joni. You're welcome. Jason, you're back.
1: I'm back. I'm here in the flesh. Um, that's a great story.
0: It is. It's a fabulous story. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think resonates for people listening is, you know, Cesare didn't, didn't have like a bad childhood or, or, you know, she also didn't have physical problems, you know, but she was on her own and got in with some of the wrong groups. And I think it can happen to anyone is the point.
1: Yeah, it's a good point because there used to be this notion that's like, you have to have a terrible childhood mm-hmm. and a terrible upbringing to turn to drugs. And n- right now, that's completely the opposite of what's happening. Most of the people that are addicted to drugs all come from good, well-to-do families that were raised well, have, were raised with ethics and morals, know the difference between right and wrong, and still get addicted. That's right. And that, you know, then you got families starting to blame themselves. and I think the whole cycle continues. Yeah. But it, you know, back in the day, it was like, you know, the addict was like the shady guy shooting, shooting up under a bridge. And now it's like addiction happens so much and so prevalent that it could literally happen to anyone. And it does happen to a lot of people. Right. And so, you know, I had a great childhood. I was raised in a family of doctors and all sorts of stuff. And. I still turned to drugs, and wasn't their fault. It was my, it was my choice. It was my decisions that led me down a life of, you know, a, not life of destruction, but a path, a temporary path of destruction. Right. Um,
0: and addiction doesn't only happen to young people either. No. That's a big, that's a big deal.
1: We, What's the oldest person you've had at Narcanon? Well, right now we have someone there that's seventy. See,
0: a seventy-year-old addicted. Okay,
1: there you go. I mean, is it yeah. drugs
0: or alcohol? alcohol alcohol okay but still and
1: sometimes we get older people that are addicted to drugs too Yeah. and typically with alcohol for some reason alcoholics like to throw in tranquilizers on top of the alcohol like Xanax or Valium or something like that which I've done that before and I don't remember 48 hours after I did that okay but you know still there you they go. still like it so addiction happens to anyone of any race creed color sex age whatever no one is really safe from it and all it really takes is the like I said this before. It's like the perfect storm. It's like you take the right drug at a time of your life where things are going a certain way. You're feeling a certain way about life or yourself, and your brain chemicals are doing something right at the right moment. And then boom, the perfect storm happens, and you're addicted. Um, so Sarah said, you know, she took OxyContin, and was like, I found my like my my everything, right? And that's that's a very similar cognition that most addicts will have. When they take a drug that all of a sudden solves all their life's problems
0: exactly exactly every
1: life problem melts away, and whatever you couldn't handle before or you couldn't confront with you know couldn't confront before or deal with before is now totally fine and you've handled it and you're good, and it's all in, because that drug helped you do that mm-hmm. interesting yes the big a big button that people have in life is help a right. big button on help right right and so Addicts at the beginning think the drugs help them. Right. They assign a huge value to it. And that's why addicts will do whatever they have to do to get the drug because it has that much value. Mm -hmm. Because it enriches their life so much and so well.
0: They need it.
1: To survive. To to
0: survive and to live the kind of life that they want to live.
1: When I started doing cocaine, I initially thought I survived better in life. Right. I worked better. um, I was a better son. Mm-hmm. I was a better coworker. I was a better student. I was just very studious on cocaine. You were
0: the life of the party. I was the life of the party. Yep.
1: I was the best friend you could have. I was the funniest person you could you, know, you could talk to, and like the and I, and <laughs> at some degree, I knew the drug made that happen. But I thought the version of me on cocaine was the better version. Which is such an odd thing to think about yourself. Well,
0: that especially is now that I know you. And right. you are the life of the party, and you are funny, and you are brilliant, and you are smart, and you're not on cocaine. So right. guess what? It's all there. Well, there
1: was a point in my life where I had low self-esteem, low self-confidence, low self-worth. I didn't think I was worth anything. Yeah. And so the cocaine dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, throughout life and growing up, I got rid of that kind of baggage <laughs> and have handled what underlied all that. Yeah. Um, that's something that Narconon also helps you helps you with. Right. We're, when we talk about like Narconon handles like the underlying problems, like those are the underlying problems we're talking about. Right. Like you get the cravings out of the way, you get the drugs out of the body. Now we deal with like what's really going on with the person. Right. And so it's not uncommon that yeah, addicts try drugs and a specific drug is like that's my thing. That's why some people get addicted to cocaine but can do Oxycontin once or twice and never touch it again. Right. Or people could do Oxycontin once and become addicted and kind of do cocaine every now and then, but they don't get addicted to that. Right. See, specific people will get addicted to specific drugs for specific reasons. Right. right. Does that make sense? Yes, it
0: does. Because you, you've you given us a good definition of addiction. And so you, when someone feels that they get the exact right thing from that drug, even though they know that it's probably not the best thing for them to do, but they get... What they think they need from that drug, then that's what they're going to continue with.
1: Right. I wanted to bring something up because yes. I read a uh, I read a CNN article. Mm-hmm. So was, we're talking about opiates, and of course, it brought this up. CNN. I think uh, I don't think I don't think it was your husband that emailed it to me. It was, to e- it was somebody. 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 It was probably my husband. <laughs> I don't think I don't know if it was Steve. There was a CNN article that talked about. In the nineteen eighties, or I think it was in nineteen eighty, the New England Journal of Medicine mm-hmm. published a letter to the editor. Or, or sorry, two people published a letter to the editor oh, to the New England Journal of Medicine I saw that. talking about well, the Steve. fact that opiates are not addictive. It, yep. So there's so these a doctor and another woman wrote this letter to the editor. I think it was a five sentence letter to the editor that talked about the fact that they that these two people have treated thousands, tens of thousands of patients with narcotics like you know long term use of narcotics mm-hmm. and they've only seen four instances of addiction out of tens of thousands of people wait so <laughs> there's, <laughs> hold such a, on. there's such so, wrong there <laughs> recently an analysis was done on the amount of times that letter to the editor has been referred to and cited by other articles
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so this letter to the editor from 1980 um As of May 27th of this year, that article has been cited and referred to 608 times as proof that opiates aren't addictive. Here's the disgusting part. Well, in my book, it's disgusting, is that um, in 1995 is when OxyContin hit the market, and the citation skyrocketed in 1995. And so there are actual instances where Per, uh, representatives from Purdue Pharma who make Oxycontin sold doctors on the idea that this is a totally safe medication to use long-term and it's not that addictive.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: I've taken Oxycontin. That is really addictive. I know. It, I know. And, Sarah, d- and dentists yeah, give it
0: to people with their when they've had tooth work, it's so dental addi- work done.
1: It's so addictive. That stuff is really, 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 really addictive. I don't know how a doctor who, I hold doctors in high esteem as far as their intelligence level. Maybe. To some degree. Yeah. They've gone through a lot of schooling. They've proven that they're like above average in in intelligence because of their ability to like pass medical boards, go through medical school and do all that thing. This is just my opinion.
0: I will say they have gone through medical school. I will agree agree with that. Yeah. Okay.
1: And how could they believe that This drug is not addictive. I don't understand that. That boggles my mind.
0: I don't either. I think, um, but I do know that drug companies market a lot to doctors. And I think a lot of times they actually, I think doctors get perks from drug companies.
1: That's the way it used to be.
0: I think they still do.
1: My dad's no B G Y N, and they, they, they. I remember when uh, the medical representatives would take him and my mom out to dinner and just like wine and dine them and sell them on the idea of you can prescribe this medication and this medication and prescribe this procedure and this procedure, and you you do get kickbacks. Yep, you, you absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he worked in a different field than you know a field where you prescribe oxycontin, but still, I mean, there was that thing. Now it's illegal; they can't do that anymore.
0: Yeah, they probably get away around it.
1: I'm sure they do. I remember being in a uh, in, in a doctor's office, and he had a jar on his like a, a mug on his desk. I remember sitting in a doctor's office waiting for the doctor to come in, mm-hmm. and as I'm waiting, I'm kind of looking around the room, and there is a poster on the wall of it says something about Effexor, which is the an antidepressant. Okay, I was like that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then on his desk was a mug that said Effexor on it. Okay. And in the, in the mug were pens that said Effexor on it. It's like, okay. And at the same time, I'm hearing like the ticking of the clock. I, remember, I don't know why I remember that like that. And I'm starting to get kind of nervous. And I'm really uncomfortable at this point. <laughs> and then I looked at the clock and the clock said Effexor. Oh, On no. the clock. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I left that doctor's office with a prescription of Effexor.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: I never took it. That's like, I knew, I already knew about like, that was a nasty draw. I didn't take it. Wow. And I thought it was just like really kind of twisted. Yeah. That, you know, doctors would prescribe something, even if it's inappropriate to put money in their, in their pocket. And it's not ethical. No. But then
0: some people aren't ethical as we know. So.
1: I've act- I've actually gotten my dad to the point where he doesn't prescribe antidepressants for postpartum depression right off the bat.
0: That's awesome. It
1: used to be a thing like yeah. you know, postpartum depression. We don't want you to harm your baby. So we're going to give you yeah, some meds. And yeah. You'll be fine. Um, or we'll send you for a psych consult. You know, there was a while where I worked a lot in holistic medicine. Uh-huh. And so I helped get people off psych drugs at a center that was in Arizona. And so I actually showed a lot of the research that I personally did and that my business partner personally did. To my father, he thought it was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it made a lot of sense. And so he stopped doing that and will actually offer them holistic, you know, more naturopathic remedies to what they're feeling before, you know, going right for like, the, you know, frontal chemical lobotomy.
0: The reason why a woman has postpartum depression is because she has a drastic change in hormones. Right. And that will affect her mentally that's
1: why i I thought it was because they had a deficiency in prozac
0: yeah there you go you're so smart (laughs) but that's good on your dad that's good on educating your dad but see he's got somebody like you that can educate him on such because the other thing about doctors is they don't study they it's not that they don't study they study a very tiny amount of nutrition very small amount so they don't know Uh, their their doctors have two solutions and two only cut it off cut it out or give a drug. That's right. all they know.
1: Well, also, most doctors get a very, very small, kind of minuscule amount of training and addiction, if any. And so a lot of times, you know, a complete, you know, full-blown addict can go into an office and leave with narcotics because the doctor didn't spot the signs and symptoms and warning signs and red flags that this person might be an addict. Right. And so they, don't, they a lot of them don't get it. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it, the, the rest of them don't care. And so, you know, the the pill mill thing here was huge. Yes. And so even in California, there were dirty doctors. And so, again, another indication of how the overprescription of opioids led to the heroin problem that we have today to where, like, the heroin problem is insane. It all comes back to the pills that were originally described as non-addictive.
0: Right. Interestingly enough, the I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but I know I mentioned to you a film that I caught on HBO, a documentary called Warning, This Drug May Kill You. And the very first thing it does is it talks about when Purdue came out and said that these drugs are not addictive. Right. And they actually show the video of the guy like going on record and saying that yep. that they're not addictive, and then of course it also says that Purdue had huge lawsuits filed against them from the people who became addicted and you,
1: then died. You know who also uh, just filed lawsuits against Purdue Pharma is the state of Ohio, hmm. <laughs> is suing Purdue Pharma because of the 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 havoc and chaos that oxycontin has caused the entire state. For those of you who don't know, the state with the worst overdose. In heroin, you know, statistics in Ohio, Ohio. Oh. Like, there's more deaths attributed to opiates in Ohio, um, you know, you know, comparatively to any other state. Wow. So to speak, you know, the uh, heroin epidemic is the worst in that state. Wow. So
0: I, they'll yeah, win. They're going to win the lawsuit because they're, they're, oh, they're
1: absolutely going to win the lawsuit. You know, per, I mean, Purdue Pharma has already lost billions in lawsuits well, maybe against them because of the way they marketed OxyCon. Maybe they'll go out of business. Here's the unfortunate thing about putting big pharma in general out of business.
0: And somebody else will do it.
1: No, no, no. It's no? not even that. It's that okay, so the pharmaceutical industry is a three trillion dollar a year conglomerate, mm-hmm. international conglomerate. Okay. If you if you take out what let's say we get what we want and we take out the pharmaceutical industry like that, we will crash the economy on a worldwide basis. Hmm. Imagine the Great Depression, but like in every country around the world. That's kind of devastating. But what's more devastating is that that industry makes that much money. Yes. That if you just took out or put a dent in that one industry, you might tank the economy worldwide. That's a scary thought. It's a scary scary thought thought. that we spend (laughs) that much money on drugs. Yes, I know. And did you know also that the United States comprises, I think, of the I think comprises like. 1% One percent or five percent of the world's population,
0: but eighty percent of the eighty percent 80% 80% of us. I, I Eighty percent of that's the world's right.
1: opiate supply. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's, like,
1: that's the only noise. I can make that. I know. Like, accurately depicts what I'm thinking. It's like that's terrible. We have the United States have a, has like an insatiable hunger for drugs. Mm-hmm. We consume more drugs than any other country.
0: I know. It, it, uh, anyway, that's a, that's a discussion for another day.
1: So. We can definitely have. Absolutely. Um, I'm really happy Cicera came on. I am too. And I, I hope her story inspires someone else to call and reach out for help.
0: I hope so too. And if they don't necessarily pick up the phone and call, they can go to org And guess what? a little chat window will pop up and they can talk to her.
1: It'll be to
0: That's right. And she'll be asking questions. And I can, as I already said, it happened to me when I went on the website and I was looking for something for the podcast. So it was very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for bringing her. Absolutely. We're going to talk again. We're going to keep talking, Jason.
1: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay. Take care. Bye.